You've stopped in at the guidepost. Brought to you by the American Saltwater Guides Association. Stock up on gear, grab a coffee at the counter, and get ready to hear incredible fish stories from the best captains on the East Coast and thought-provoking conversations with stakeholders and policymakers working to protect these fisheries. This podcast is presented by Costa Sunglasses. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Guidepost, season two. If you can believe it, they wanted us to come back for more. Uh, today, we have a special guest and a special co-host. I'd like to introduce uh, a fellow that works with us on a lot of policy issues, um, a gentleman named Will Poston, who you've heard on other podcasts. He's going to be joining me today as our co-host. Will, how are you doing, buddy? Tony, I'm doing good. How are you doing? I am bitter and fueled by caffeine and nicotine, so it's a pretty much normal day for me. <laughs> there you go. And yeah, man, you know, I'm honesty on the guidepost, honesty only. So I'm excited about our guest, Will. I know you're excited too. Um, you know, you we do this work and we meet people along the way that are of the same mindset as us and that is they love fishing more than anything in the world and they found they dug and clawed and found some way to make a living uh so they could be close to the water and have a positive impact on the fishery and without further ado i would like to introduce my buddy from the nature conservancy carl labu ah thanks tony i'm so glad to join you and will uh this afternoon thanks for the invite so, Carl, I'm sure the list listeners are interested. Now, I know you from being a mate on bluefin tuna jigging and popping trips. So if someone were to hire one more cast charters, nyctuna.com for my buddy John, our president, you might be one of the mates. How awesome is that? <laughs> That that is the that's one of the most awesome things, and and it's been phenomenal during the pandemic. It's uh, even though I've been keeping away from a lot of people, like a lot of us working from home, that the getting out of, like one day a week uh, on these tuna trips has really been like what's been saving me. And in fact, yeah, I've been looking at the forecast, is, looking at the forecast for tomorrow, thinking like, man, is it one well, more see, trip I, knew, I, I could get out? Was gonna, <laughs> I knew that was going to come up because I saw. Yeah, they haven't stopped. Yeah, right. Will, did you, Will, did you see John's, uh, John's posts from this morning? I saw, yeah, I saw John's. I've seen it on a couple other channels. Like they just won't quit this year. It seems like. Hallelujah. Right. I mean, yeah. hallelujah. Um, I know I know John and his team put a hurting on him. And we were trying to schedule this podcast. Carl was like, look, I'm going Wednesday if the weather's OK. <laughs> I was like, man, I am not scheduling a podcast going to interrupt your last bluefin tuna trip of the year. So, Carl, tell us tell us a little bit about that. I kind of feel like I kind of feel like that's one of your favorite things to do but I don't think it's your favorite. I, I don't know. That's just my gut. Like we talk about fishing for everything and I know you love your tuna, but like you spend a lot of time long Island, the sound and, and all around that general area. What's your favorite thing? What's your favorite Ooh. thing to do on any given day? I mean, I, I, I do it all. I grew up fishing on party boats and surf fishing, actually pure fishing, and then kind of graduated to surf fishing and then got my own boat. Uh, I keep a boat in Long Island Sound. So for us, it's it's uh, summer flounder. The striper fishing, honestly, is not the, the it's really a nighttime bait bite, which I'm not too into. Um, the summer flounder is, is really great that May and June when the flounder bike first comes in. I got to say this time of year, it's just finished for me, but black fishing is just something that, um, it's a real captain's sport, I think. So there's, it, you have to think of all different levels about where you go, what you're using. It changes as the, as this, it's pretty short season. So you, you're really looking forward to it. It's at the end of the season. So it's like the last big hurrah. Um, except for this crazy December tuna bite, which some years pops up and some years doesn't. Well, 
you know, let's be honest here. You must be a pretty good mate because I've never heard John complain about you. <laughs> and he's not one to hold back. So, Will, have you ever – I've never heard John complain about Carl as a mate. Have you? No, I, I have not. That's like – That has not that's, come up. That is a serious – that's like – 10,000 five-star reviews on Amazon, man. Like if you must, you must know your stuff. You must be able to stick a fish with a gaff, right? Um, if, uh, if, if you're going out there frequently with John and you're a trusted mate. So I got to do that trip next year. It is, it is on my list and whether anyone likes it or not, I will be bringing my 14 weight. Uh, and I, well, Tony, do you remember earlier this spring or maybe this summer when John was teasing, uh, people like us saying it would have been a great day for the, the feather, the feather truckers out there. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. And, and, you know, it's just, uh, I don't know. Part of me is just like, I'll show him, you know? And then the other part is <laughs> if I do one little thing wrong, I'll never hear the end of it for the rest of my life. But that's never been, that's never stopped me doing anything else before. So why now? Right. There are those, there are those moments that just happen. And I think that's what gets you to always want to keep going out. And, you know, it doesn't happen all the time, but all of a sudden that, you know, the fists just come up, you know, and they're all around the boat and sometimes they're finicky, but it's, it's just awesome when that happens. Yeah. And then sometimes they just go down, right? And they can disappear, but just like that. Yeah. But you know, it's, it's the whole show, right? Yeah. Cause you're looking for aggregations of life out there in the middle of nowhere. I mean, let's not be mistaken here. Like, you know, they were in close to New York. They were crazy close to home because of bait aggregations for a long time. And, you know, Carl, I don't think a lot of people know this, but when those Menhaden boats from Reedville showed up in New York a couple of years ago, you worked your butt off to get some legislation yeah. passed. And I'd, I'd, I'd kind of, I, I'd kind of like to shine a little bit of light on that because y'all did, y'all did some heavy lifting at TNC and, and especially you. So could you tell us a little bit about that? Cause we really benefited from it this year. Yeah. You know, what, what was really rewarding about that? There was, there was this giant loophole that basically the state was selling permits for Persane boats. It, they, they, just, they just cost a little money for it, but the big boats, the small boats could come in. We had one boat that was coming in pretty regularly from uh, Massachusetts, and you know nothing about nothing bad about the you know this individual who was coming in. But we were working really hard to bring these fish back, and we didn't necessarily want to see boats coming from out of state and sucking them all up. And what was really rewarding is we were able to put a coalition together, get the ear of the governor and some key senators and explain to them. And I got to stand right next to the baymen who have, you know, multi-generations making a living in small scale, scale artisanal fisheries with 200 foot beach seines and, um, and charter boat captains and recreational fishermen and, and so people from the scientific community and say, hey, look, you know, we're all asking for the same thing. How, how often do you have all of us come and ask for the same thing. And it was, and so we ended up a, asking. If that's it. a rhetorical question, I can say never. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> like, never. Everyone always fights about everything. They'll fight about the <laughs> color shirt you're wearing, right? Will, every day we wake up and people are like, yeah, let's all work together on that, right? That's our day to day. Uh, if, if that was our day to day, we wouldn't be here, I don't think. And we're here. So, you know, yes. Carl and that big coalition got together. They banned purse sains in state waters. And all year long, we heard about guys fly fishing for big sharks. We guys we heard about we heard about, you know, seeing giant tuna inshore and and all these crazy drone shots and all these opportunities for fishermen. So thank you, Carl, for yeah. for putting your shoulder into it and doing a lot of the hard work. You know, none of this is done in a bubble and one person isn't isn't solely responsible for anything. But, you know, we know we know how hard you worked on it, buddy. Well, um, thank you. I and, do. and what was really cool is it created a buzz down on the floor at Capitol Hill when they were debating this bill. Uh, and you had, you had, you know, senators and assemblymen talking about seeing dolphins off of the beach and seeing whales and, um, 
And it kind of created a buzz. I think there were people who didn't even know how to pronounce the word menhaden who got a lesson in what these fish are and, and uh, what the impacts are to fishing you're, and also to wildlife. You, you're bringing back the good old days because yeah. O'Malley, Governor O'Malley in Maryland, couple governor, well, one governor ago, we would have to like say menhaden in his ear 50 times in a row before he did something because he called them Minhaden. <laughs> and we'd all just cringe and be like, Oh God, like this, please don't say that again. I even got him. We, we, as a gift because we won the Menhaden thing back in the day, we got him a little copper Menhaden for his desk. Definitely adhered to all the lobby rules. So let's not, let's not do a deep dive on me. Um, but yeah. And it said, in capital letters, men Hayden with a, <laughs> a little little joke on the old Y Oak desk in uh, in in the state house in Maryland. So, all right, bud. So you know, now we know. Now we know a little bit about Carl, right? We I don't even know if we've said. I think I've said T and C twice. What's your day to day at work, and what's what's your title, and who do you work for, and all that kind of stuff? And sure. Then we're going to get into the real reason why we're here. Yeah, so so I had a, you know I've had a couple of different jobs. I work for the Nature Conservancy. I'm currently the uh, director of the Ocean Programs for New York. Um, prior, I've been here about 18 years. Prior to that, I I actually did fisheries assessment and fishery management for like eight years. Talk about un, unrewarding career. Um, that's a real challenging, and I feel. I, my heart uh, goes out to some of the folks who are trying to do the right thing who are in that space. It's not a great space. And, you know, I, my father was actually a commercial fisherman. I grew up fishing. I wanted to work in this space. It was, it's hard to, for the folks who are listening who make a living fishing. I know how hard it is to do that. And so I, I kind of chose a career path where I could work in this space, um, and, uh, but, but not in the actual day-to-day -day fishing, uh, except for when I volunteer to mate once in a while. Carl, let me tell you, man, I, I had a, it seems like every week I have a, a young person call me and ask me a question like, um, you know, what do I need to go to school for to do what you do? And I'm like, don't do it, man. I'm like, look, there's like eight jobs out there, right? Like, it's impossible. You know, it's the hardest. I it doesn't have the physical wear and tear, you know, what we do as, as being out on the water every day and your body's not taking a, a beating and yeah. you don't have to be your own mechanic and all those things. And I, and I think, I think the people that do what we do professionally, I don't, I don't even know how I ended up here. Like the career path, it's so weird. It's just like, um, it's like fate fate puts you here hard work you know creates opportunity and it's a lot of it is just the crossroads when you make decisions and say oh, i think i'll try that out i mean uh you know 27 years ago i started volunteering because yeah. i kind of saw fisheries declining from when i was a kid and i just loved it and i would just volunteer and do like a trash cleanup or anything just to be around like the cool older guys who knew the ins and outs of everything. And I just absorbed anything that they would tell me. And I, I to this day, I still don't know what the hell I'm doing. I, I wake <laughs> up in the, I wake up in the morning. I just try the best I can, you know, you just try to do good. Um, and, and I'll tell you watching, watching what y'all do at TNC. Uh, I just could not be, you know, more proud to, to have y'all as like, one of our trusted partners, um, you know, y'all have such a long history of doing good things, uh, especially the, the, the team that you work with in New York. Um, hey, Chris. Hey, Kate. If y'all are <laughs> listening, I, lo I love y'all almost as much as I love Carl. So, so my man, Carl, wind. Yeah. Fighting climate change. Getting rid of those fossil fuels as like I turn on the 500 horsepower on my boat. <laughs> it's a little hypocritical, you know, uh, and my F-350 that literally like I have to kill dinosaurs and liquefy them to get down the street. 
in you, my you truck. You have one of those things where the black smoke comes out of the... Uh... <laughs> uh, hey, 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 hey. That's cool. The chicks dig that. All right. So... Um, Carl, his isn't even intentional either. No, yeah, it's just the engine's going. Yeah, Will's right. It's just the engine's just getting ready to go. No, Willie, uh, Will, Willie came over yesterday and and he was looking at Merica. That's what I named my truck. <laughs> and uh, and Merica could eat his Subaru Outback. I just <laughs> it was just so funny those two things sitting next to each other, and I'm like, my tire's bigger than your whole car. So anyway, Carl wind we deal with wind development on the east coast this this has been fast-tracked it is a priority of this administration and i think we all have mixed feelings about it yeah you know we know so here's our feelings we know it's coming there's been so many billions of dollars invested in this there's no way, even if you wanted to stop it, you're not stopping it. You're not stopping it. There is no Braveheart scene. We're not going to paint our faces blue and scream freedom. Uh, and and the and the and the wind farms are are going to go away. It's not going to happen. They're here. So a logical person would look at it and say, "How do we make the best of this?" And by the best of it. You look at the problems that we face as, you know, fisheries management people and where the holes are, you know, that create the problems. And you wonder how to kind of fill in those those gaps and make lemonade out of lemons. And I think that's where we are as the Guides Association. And our biggest fear, I think, is that development is outpacing the science. And we'd like to see that catch up. So y'all have been engaged in, in the wind development issue. Some of these are going to be real close to your home. You know, where, 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 where are y'all at now? Where have you come from and where are you at at TNC on all yeah, this stuff? So, um, you know, the, some of these, some of the earlier projects when Cape Wind was proposed and there was a project off Long Island that was proposed that was going to be right off Jones Beach. You know, we saw those pop up and we, you know, this is going back 15 plus years. And we thought that that was going to be the time and then it all evaporated. And like you said, now the, 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 uh, the tone is completely different. Now these leases are going for over $100 million. When these companies make investments in, of $130 million to lease an area, you know that they are intending to build uh, to build these projects out. Uh, I waffle back and forth from uh, excited to terrified. I don't know if that if if that makes sense. Um, it's terrifying to to think about the the vastness of the change that's going to happen in the ocean. And then again, I was a fishery manager that over saw the demise of what was New York's biggest commercial fishery was the American lobster fishery. And that fishery disappeared because of climate change. Um, winter flounder has kind of disappeared. That was our biggest recreational fishery. Now there was an overfishing factor involved there as well, but we lost our winter flounder and our lobster from impacts that have already happened because of climate change. And every fisherman knows that they're seeing different things in the water than they saw 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and 30 years ago. So um, I'm not a polar bear, but I, I like polar bears. Uh, I think that uh, I like coral reefs. Um, I think that to save the ocean, we need to, to take some steps. But it, it, the pace of it is terrifying, and we are absolutely trying to figure out um, first how you avoid things and then minimize things. And the topic that we're going to talk about now is a, an opportunity to potentially actually improve things as we think about how we might uh, see these projects develop out. And that's, that's kind of an exciting, an exciting space, like you said, making lemonades out of uh, lemons. I think there's some exciting things in that space. So, you know, I think a lot of people, Carl, are looking at this somewhat on, you know, we don't, there's a lot of places in the Atlantic where we don't have structure. You know, we were, we were talking before the podcast, like we sunk a destroyer. We made a bunch of reef balls and threw them in the water. But 
it's kind of a little bit here, a little bit there. And there's there's big swaths of like the mid-Atlantic bite that are just mud and don't do a heck of a lot to support marine life. And when you look at the Gulf of Mexico, you know, it, it can be a vast wasteland. And then, boom, one of these rigs pops up 80 miles offshore and it pulls in every fish in the general area and makes makes fishing a little bit easier. So on the most basic level as a fisherman, I think that's how some charter for hire and recreational fishermen are looking at this is that they'll have structure in the water 17, 18 miles off the coast that on a calm day, you know, a 21 foot center console can get out there. No problem. And I was looking over the numbers from NOAA, you know, what was it? 67% of all trips taken in saltwater are taken in the Atlantic. And of those trips, I think almost 90%, and I may be wrong. Please don't email me. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. Some 87, 85% are within eight miles of shore. There's not a lot of people that are going out there like y'all do on the tuna trips, right? There's not very many people. So I kind of wonder when that guy's in the 21-foot center console and he sees those turbines on the horizon and it's a flat day, how many more trips are going to go out there? How's that effort going to increase and how much more effective are they going to be? Because, yeah, I think that's a good question. These are big things in the water. It it does give you a target to aim aim for, you know, Um, and I think that uh, gas prices will probably dictate how many people are going to make that make those runs out. Um, But, uh, you know, I think that in the mid-Atlantic, basically, once you get south of Long Island, you're right. There's just not a lot of hard structure. When I go run offshore to go black sea bass fishing uh, or cod fishing, you know, we're, we're basically bouncing from shipwreck to shipwreck because that's that's the uh the structure that we have and carl that's kind of that's through some you know when you're talking about going black sea bass fishing on some of those wrecks you know that those are some places that you know you probably have some you know it's from your experience you know where they are but to tony's point you know everyone's going to be able to see these things um so you know another some of these areas that you're talking about where they might not be as exploitable these wind farms, you know, sure, they're going to aggravate a ton of life. You know, there's going to be a ton of biodiversity, but at the same time, they're going to be pretty easy to access for, you know, your everyday guy. Yeah, although they won't be able to access them every day, right? <laughs> because, because, yeah, because of the weather. I, you know, we, I've heard some of the same arguments. Um, uh, we'll talk a little bit probably about like pr- producing fish and building habitat that that actually increases fish production. But I've heard similar arguments about menhaden schools is that, boy, it's a lot easier to find a school of menhaden than it is to find striped bass. And so you're making it too easy by increasing menhaden schools for the striped bass fishermen to target striped bass. And, you know, Maybe there's some truth to that. At the same time, if you're making more striped bass, then that's a good thing. Yeah, and I guess that was partly the um, how much time I've uh, spent with Willie in the past uh, couple of years, just the difficulty in kind of estimating how this effort is going to change too, you know? I think that's one of the holes that we were talking about, you know, the, the lemons lemonade thing, because... You know, I mean, everything changes. That's for sure. And when you see these changes coming and you really care about the resource, I look at it and say, if they can afford a hundred and something million dollars for the lease, and then God knows how much for the construction and everything else, maybe they can help with some of these holes and explain how 
they're going to neg- potentially negatively impact fishery stocks by increasing the effort. And at, there's technology has come so far in the last 20 years. It's frightening. And there's ways to do it. So if we can get better data through this process, I think that's a huge positive. I think that's I think that's an enormous positive uh, for these wind farms coming in. Um, you know, if if the data coming in is crap, the data going out is going to be crap too. The better that we can make it, the better it's going to be for everyone. I mean, Carl, do you have any? Yeah, I think there's going to be a lot. Of, there already is a lot of more focus on on research and monitoring around the Atlantic to get baselines um, before these projects go in. We are certainly pushing for a lot more of that. It, it, it's in the fish space, in the marine mammal space, in the sea turtle space, and then I kind of lump everything that flies into to one space because, believe it or not, there's there's things other than seabirds and shorebirds out there. You have songbirds and bats and things like that as well. Um, you were telling me you feel bad for all the gannets because they don't look up. Yeah, right. yeah. that's a big thing. Like it's it's gonna be tough to be a gannet there for a little while, huh? I, this this is the time of year I love getting out striper fishing and and watching the gannets. They all come off the coast here. They're they're they're, they're I think they're the coolest seabird that that we get to watch and and I, so I do spend a lot of time looking at them. And yeah, they don't look where they're going. They're always looking down. <laughs> I was telling Carl. I was telling Will. Man, I, I bet you it was. I bet you it was a year or two ago. You know, you you have these you have these good old days, old man moments. You know, you try to tell the younger generation what it was like, and I can vividly remember gannet storms at the Bay Bridge Tunnel that were five thousand birds, and it looked like a tornado when you came up from it from a couple of miles away because you had you had the front birds diving, you yeah. had the back birds going up in concentric circles the ones that had got the got the food they're going up and it it was you looked at it and you're like did somebody leave the discovery channel on like what the hell is it and it's just the most incredible thing they're massive birds they only eat big bait i mean if you go out, if you're in the ocean and you see a thousand gannets look at your knots yeah <laughs> And get ready to throw out because there's something going on, right? There's something I love them too. They're they're really they're really cool animals. I, and yeah, they create those moments like we see when we're bluefin fishing with in a whale and dolphin feed, where but your heart's pounding because you want to catch a fish, and at the same time you feel like you're in a National Geographic special, and you just want to take a step back and and just just look at what you're seeing and and think about the fact that it's such a small number of people on the planet earth who get to experience what you're seeing right there. We're so lucky. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's my, I'm I didn't feel that way when I was younger. Like usually the thing going in my head was like, get out of my way. <laughs> you know, get out of, you're messing up my cast, get out of my way. There's huge fish down there. And like, sometimes now I'll watch it for a little bit before I, before I let a cast go, because you really, you understand that normal people going to work every day will never see what we see out there. And, just- and what's, you know, where I live so close to New York city, what's, what's so exciting is that sometimes this stuff is happening. Like, you know, the sh- you can see the skyline in New York city. And, and I think that, you know, the people in Manhattan, I think they think, uh, or I envision that they believe that you have to travel really far to see these really wild places, and and in reality, you can kind of see it from the Belt Parkway uh, if you if you know if you look a clear day. So, will you and I thoroughly went through TNC's website, and I think they got something pretty cool cooking with this wind development. I, I'd agree. I, I think it is. Do you remember when we talked like when I because Carl asked Will, you sent it to me and said, do not send it to anyone. <laughs> Will, did I send it to anyone? And t- I did not get it until this morning. Ah, ah. I'm an honest I, I'm Italian. It's part of my culture. Secrecy and vengeance. That's 50 percent of my culture. Carl, you got me. You told me not to share it. I didn't share it. 
Will looked at it today, and I think the only thing that I said about it, I said, boy, did TNC do this right? Because this is a way, the best way, in my sense, that we can make a little bit of lemonade out of all these things that kind of scare us about this development. So, Will, you read it. Why don't you why don't you give a little prep for the listeners and then let, we'll let Carl tell us what what TNC is working on here. Yeah, sure, Tony. Um, so I guess just going backwards a little bit. So all of these wind turbines that, you know, are going to pop up here in the next couple of years, um, the majority of them these days that are getting permitted and the developers are proposing are going to be monopile designed so they're going to be one big pole stuck down into the ocean floor um, and then to prevent erosion uh, of the sand at the bottom um, they're going to put scour protection all around these poles and what tnc is working on and carl jump in whenever is to improve the scour protection at the seafloor so that it is more compatible um, for optimizing habitats for native species. Yes. So uh, my colleagues and I have have a good amount of experience um, working inside the bays and estuaries on habitat. And there's a lot of thought that goes into thinking about designing habitat restoration projects, if it's an oyster reef or, you know, something that's associated with the shoreline and thinking about how, how it can serve the fun of your function in some cases, even if it's a shoreline protection, but then also have a habitat value. And we thought maybe we can apply this to the offshore space. And um, you mentioned scour protection and, and for the listeners, I, I'm guessing most of the people who listen to this podcast have stood in the, uh, in the surf and uh, had a wave come by and pull the sand out from a, from around your legs when the wave goes by, and and that's that's what we're talking about when we talk about scour. And so imagine these big wind turbine foundations, um, and the currents and the storms uh, as those move through, move the sand and mud uh, or, or from around the foundation, and you don't want that to happen. And so if we do nothing and these projects move forward. The developers will go ahead, install the foundations, install scour protection, which can be a variety of things, piles of rocks and other material to prevent that sand from moving from the currents and waves and storms. Um, And their only thing they'll be thinking about and factoring in is how well it serves its purpose as scour protection. Um, What we're proposing is that if you're going to put all this material in the water anyway, with a little bit of extra thought and design, we can do it in a way that actually builds habitat intentionally. Because this material will become habitat even if thought isn't going into it. But with that little extra thought, we can think about the target species that we, um, we think could benefit from this and maybe the kinds of materials and the way it's configured that will um, be best for whether it's, it's lobsters and cod in New England, whether it's blackfish and sea bass and summer flounder and other critters here in the mid-Atlantic or, you know, grouper and snapper in the South Atlantic. So Carl, I I was pretty, you know, interested, impressed, um, just at the, you know, how complex some of these, um, some of these, uh, structures that you guys are proposing, um, you know, for these scour protections, because they're, they're already employed in other places, but, uh, you know, you guys are trying to work to bring these to the wind farms. Um, you know, some of them look like indoor cat homes. They are like vertical um, and have all sorts of holes and, and levels where a little lobster can get under there. It can provide, you know, habitat for juvenile sea bass, like you were saying. Um, how did you guys, did you guys just find all of these throughout the the country and just kind of make a collection for them? Or was it a little more, um, did, did a little more thought go so into what it? We, what we did for this report, the, um, the first part of the report, it, it is really two parts here. And the first part is really describing the opportunity 
and the different species that could benefit and from some, and some of the design criteria that could be factored into to thinking about in, uh, doing this. And then describing how you could factor this into the original design or how you could maybe do it as add-ons if something was already out there in the water, you could add on some of these features. The second part of the report is um, we know all these projects are going to be happening and we know that we want to support U.S. businesses. And so we thought about who it who in the U.S. is in the business already of kind of manufacturing these types of things, uh, these types of materials, and how they could be applied. So in some cases, it's as simple as the kind of rock you use and the size of rock you use. I know in the community I grew up in, they, re they put this gambian around one of these places that I used to fish from the shore all the time when I was a kid. And it's like this uh, shale slate shale rock in these wire cages. I'm sure some guys have seen that. Nothing grows on that stuff. If they did, if they did a similar project and used limestone, it'd probably be full of living things now. And so it's, in some cases, it's the kind of rock you use, the size of rock, the kinds of spaces between the rock. And then in other cases, it's really manufactured materials. A lot of this has been adapted from the folks who are working inside the bays on things like oyster reefs, um, these little, um, these pyramids, oyster castles, um, and those can be scaled up to, to the offshore space to be larger and heavier and accommodate some of the needs offshore. And then a lot of thought's been given recently into the in veneers and these kinds of um, the chemical compositions of the concrete that better factor in shell material and the kind of things that will foster natural settlement of marine life. Um, and in many cases, you know, it's just as strong or even stronger than than basic concrete. But again, a little extra thought goes into how you do it, and you end up putting materials down that um, sea anemones, barnacles, all sorts of mussels, and crusting organisms will naturally settle to, and and really start to build the foundation of this offshore habitat. So, Carl. Yeah, I mean, uh, Will, you go on if you got another question. You got a you got a line of question here with Carl. I'm going to hit him with a few when you're done, though. Okay. Uh, well, I, I was just, you know, one other thing that I saw in the report, Carl, that I know, I know for a fact has you know come up in a bunch of um, you know these offshore wind meetings, webinars, stuff that I've attended. People are fixated, probably rightfully, on you know how the decommissioning is going to work, and. As it is right now, the developers will have to remove all of the material out at decommissioning. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about you know some of the efforts that y'all are maybe doing to um, try to keep some of these beneficial habitats in the water um, so they don't need to come out in 20, 30 years? Yeah, so decommissioning is is a is a really big topic and it's and it's a really big potential expense for all of these projects. And what we're we're not proposing that that just like willy-nilly things get kept in the water. What we're suggesting is that we should be thinking carefully about what goes in and then monitoring it and really doing an assessment of its value as habitat as these projects start to go in about adaptively trying to increase their value as habitat through some of the design proposals that are in this report. And then really, if once you can document and show its value as habitat, I think that it will absolutely inform the decisions that get made on decommissioning, because I think there are some materials that should come out of the water, but when it comes to things like rock, and hard materials that are creating um, these reef structures, we I think once once we do an evaluation and assessment of what's living there, um, you know I don't want to prejudge the outcome, but I, I believe that it, that decisions will get made that it might not make sense to pull some of this material out, and I think that that's that's really what is um, well. There's a precedent for that, right, Carl? Yeah, sure. In in uh, in the Gulf of Mexico and in Southern California, with the rigs to reef programs um, of pulling some material out and leaving some material in, and I and I think that that um, that that is a deviation of what is that what's kind of on the books right now. But I think the anticipation is that smart evaluation will inform that, and there will be a deviation in that at the end. You know. Um... As a 
as a complete, because you know I love to go off on tangents. I, I saw a science article that that garbage patch in the Pacific <laughs> is is supporting, like, it's in the middle of the Pacific and, like, inshore species that somehow get washed out into the ocean, juvenile fish, are now living in the garbage patch and calling it home, the great garbage patch in the Pacific. And you're like... You're like, man, nature finds a way, huh? Like, it's inc- it's incredible. And and then, so you're talking about designing these things to actually be habitat. Yeah, so I don't want to equivalent, uh, uh, make it sound equivalent to the garbage pack. I, I used to work, I used to work in Alaska, and you know, if people really wanted to go see a bear, for sure, you might go to the landfill, right? Because you'd see a bear. But to say that you know, landfills are good for bears is probably uh, a real over a real stretch. And so I think that might, you know, that's the way I'm thinking of these. Well, garbage I wasn't saying, I'm just saying like, <laughs> I was, I was sarcastically saying at some point, someone's going to be like, no, no, you got to leave that garbage patch out there because it's habitat. You know, like I, I, I've heard it all right. I've, I've heard it all in my life, but point is with this is this can actually be designed to be real habitat. Yeah. And, and I think, I think it has the potential to even take our, um, you know, I've been involved in a lot of the artificial reef creation in New York too. I I've been out with our former governor Cuomo, probably a half dozen times dropping pieces of bridges and sinking ships. And, uh, they do give some thought into, uh, into how they, where they put those and not, don't put them on top of each other and whatnot in these artificial reef construction. But it really is a, um, it's an opportunity. It's like, we have this ship we want to sink. We have this bridge material, you know, not, not a lot of thought isn't given to the chemical composition and, and making it designed to be habitat. And what that is what we're talking about here. It's like, yes, it has to serve the function of erosion and scour protection. What we do can't interfere with that, but there really is this opportunity. And there, and I think there is this potential hook to get the the agencies and the um and the developers kind of on board with making that little extra investment for well, the, the uh, truth bank is, of the bus. The truth is there's a big carrot and a stick because I think the wind developers have suffered from a pretty pretty broad, you know, bad publicity um from fishermen. You know, uh, and we we're not we don't have enough time on this podcast or five the next five to talk about the motivation with that. Um, but it's green and it has president's faces on it. Um, it wasn't for like what's best for the resource. So I think what we're talking about is what's best for the resource. So in an ideal world. You develop these areas with a keen eye on how we improve, you know, and let's be honest, there used to be a lot more stuff out there and, and we kind of ruined it. You know, there were, there were some pretty cool features in the mid Atlantic bite that have been destroyed by bad fishing practices. And, and I think we've paid the price for that. So, you know, we're talking about these lease areas and I think you said what, 2000. Yeah, we're talking, I mean, we're looking at in the next decade or maybe 12 years, you know, 2000 or more just on the Atlantic coast. And when you think about, think about that, you know, this has the potential to be, um, if it's intentionally and smartly thought out in the, in the, from this habitat perspective, the, inte- the largest intentional offshore habitat creation, you know, on, on planet Earth, or it's certainly in the Atlantic. And we know how to That's do it. That's pretty amazing when you put it like that. Yeah, right, Will. And, and we know how to do it the right way. I think that's a, we're not just pushing stuff over the side of a boat. We actually know... And, and I think the fascinating thing is it'll be different for each lease area. So you're talking about a lease area that's on the border of North Carolina and Virginia. It's going to have different species on it than, let's say, 
vineyard wind off the coast of Massachusetts and, and should probably take that into account when designing the needs, right, of the habitat for those fish. I mean, how far are y'all going to dive down into this, Carl? I mean, and you got to start out with like a pilot thing, you know, convince the developers that this is a good idea, do a pilot thing. Look, at it. We all know how this goes. Right, right. But to be honest, there aren't a lot of these things in the water right now. So no, y'all right. are, are doing this at the right time. I guess that's there, what I'm saying. There, there's seven. There's seven turbines in the water in the Atlantic. The five off of Block Island don't have scour protection. The two off of Virginia, they're called Sea Vow, Coastal Virginia Offshore Wind. Um, they do have scour protection, and I think we're, you know, we're looking at that location to potentially test some ideas. Um, and uh, and there's there's kind of two different levels of test. I don't want to make it sound like we know all the answers. I think we kind of have a, a a cookbook of ideas that should be tested. There's the there's there's some basic engineering questions that engineers are going to want to know. You know, whatever you do can't mess up my turbine. Makes sense, right? Um, that that's a given to make sure that that doesn't happen. And then the other thing is really, you know, how much? What do we do, and how much can we improve the habitat value by doing different things? And I think that's 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 really ripe for testing out. It's also ripe for understanding new how we can use new technology and the innovation in in cameras and lasers and underwater vehicles and all sorts of kinds of ways to look at this that has a lot of applicable value for all sorts of other ocean research and understanding all of the different aspects of these wind farms. And so I think there's a lot we can learn from some demo projects at, at the existing, uh, the existing the turbines that are out there and then some of the first ones that get put in that could hopefully really inform and be a tremendously exciting opportunity as these projects continue to develop over the next decade. Well, buddy, I mean, you know, as well as I do, a big part of what fisheries policy people do is to try to kind of pull that little thread on the sweater and, and, and say, okay, you know, this is what's going on. How, how, how do we, how do we, mush all this together and get a net positive. And we talked about that earlier in the podcast. And and you say, you know, what are the holes? Like, what are the problems that we run into on a daily basis? And I think I think habitats, one of the problems and by no means does this mean we forget about inshore habitat and right. clean water and oil for God's sakes. No. But if this could enhance that well that's a win and and the other one is data you know fishing data specifically from our sector the recreational sector so will brought up you know the fact that it's gonna increase effort i mean i I don't like to make these broad statements and look, I think there's been four decent days for me to go fishing since September. I mean, it's, it's blown. It, I, I've never seen so many gale warnings ever in my life. I, I feel like I live at like Cape tribulation or like Cape horn or something. And I mean, it's insane. It's insane what the weather's been like, but, you put a bunch of those things 15 miles off the coast, you bet your ass it's going to increase effort because there's now like, and Will, you're funny, man, because I was thinking when you were talking about this before, I am I am the most anti-spot burner. Like, I will unfriend you, unfollow you. I will, I will haunt you until you die. Um for uh if you if you have the audacity to burn a spot in the chesapeake bay on social media i don't think i'm gonna have the same feeling about these wind farms right at 800 feet tall i'm pretty sure they can see them from the international space station <laughs> so it's not gonna be like i feel like it's a safe place right i feel like like i'm not gonna be furious at a friend who puts a picture of like a big dodo 
or Mahi or whatever you want to call it with a turbine in the background because I'm like, eh, you know, who would have thunk it? Who, you know, we, you, you catch them on a, you catch them on a, a baby's, a floating baby's diaper in the ocean, a mahi. They'll, they'll literally go to anything. I think you might catch a couple in a couple hundred turbines, right? I'm just, I'm just guessing. I'm, I'm laughing, so, uh, not about the diaper because I'm not sure I would catch anything under a diaper. But the um, oh, you you elitist. The uh, <laughs> I shot a deer on one once, but that's a whole other story. So yeah, uh, <laughs> that is another story. <laughs> I, I we're all in these in these forums with you know where uh, people put up posters of pictures and and they blur out the shoreline. I could just imagine them like blurring out the number because these these all these turbines are gonna have little numbers on them to say which one people will be blurring out the number of which turbine it is. Well I've seen that in Tony's neck of the woods on the the, the Bay Bridge pilings. Mm-hmm. Oh, for God's sakes. No, like, look, man, I, I people people say the name of the I, I, you, these new people and they just want to be popular and they say the name of the creek they're fishing in. And then they have a a, a marked buoy with a number on it behind them. And you're just like the, the earlier this summer, I found some red drum off an island by my house and I was running the boat because there were some problems and I was just, and you know, you leave the dock and you're like, I'm never leaving without a rod, right? I'll always have a rod, but then you have a couple problems with your engines and you're like, I don't even want to fish anymore. I got to fix these stupid engines. You know, my kid wants to go out. I got to make sure everything's safe. So you run out with the engine and you run into a school of red drum and you're like, son of a bitch and like 40 to 50 inch red drum and i'm sitting there i and i'm like okay you know i know where you are and i watched him for a little while and i was like all like woohoo yeah man I'm, I'm going out tomorrow i know where they are and that night some idiot tackle shop around me put up that like literally the unwashed masses were like throwing jigs at like 12 inch stripers and busted to like 48 inch red drum and they put the island the side of the island that it was on like it was the east west north side and how many feet of water and i ran my boat out the next day and there was a flotilla and i'm like i i will ne- i wouldn't i wouldn't buy a piece of a blood worm from that <laughs> tackle store anymore like why would you do that like why what what common sense but in any event i don't i'm not worried about it with these things because you know this is a whole new world man it's a whole new friggin world for us there's going to be a gazillion of them out there and everyone's going to have the one that they like and the side that they like to fish it on and this one's on this tide and that one's on that tide but if carl and tnc can get this done Man, will it make a difference? And the other hole in all of this that I look at, the number one hole in recreational fisheries data, to me, is calculating effort and catch. And if you're going to have, if Will and I are correct, and you're going to have this aggregation of fishermen coming to these things on calm days, Boy, do we have an opportunity to make some inroads headway on that. I don't know what you think about that, Carl. Yeah, you know, there's this project in Ocean City. It's it's hard in New York. We have so many different ports that piece, you know, boats can go out of. And even on a on a real windy day, there's so many places in wait, the bays. Wait, Ocean City, New Jersey, Ocean City, uh, Maryland. So there's a project in Ocean City, Maryland, where they're talking oh, they're putting familiar. with the yeah. cameras. They're putting cameras yeah. up to count boats. So I think. I think the the idea behind that is these some of these MRIP numbers is you get port samplers and you multiply it out and there's a tremendous criticism if they multiply out and it's a gale force wind and you know nobody was fishing that day um, and I think that I think that numbers like that from cameras on turbines or in that you know in this case in Ocean City like it's a good way to ground truth you thing to be like you know nobody was fishing that day it, it was a you know 45 mile an hour winds and you'll know that kind of thing. Even if it's not windy, you might have uh, eight foot seas for some other reason of an offshore storm. You know, you you'll, you make sure you can 
count that so so they don't multiply those numbers out. We definitely need better, more accurate and precise data from recreational fisheries. And I will, you know, we we work kind of on a day-to-day basis with these developers. And my opinion of the developers and the people that we work with specifically is they want to help, but nobody's telling them how to do it. Right. I mean, it's not like, it's not like they're like, screw those. We have it in for those fishermen. It's our ocean. Only our, only our wind turbines can exist out here. They come to people every day and say, what can we do to help? I think that that's, I think, I think there's truth to that. I think that everyone gets so overwhelmed by the scale of all these projects. There's like 17 projects in the hopper that it's, it's human nature, particularly a true of scientists as well to just focus on the things we don't know and say, you need to answer all these questions without necessarily laying out a, a framework of what is an answerable question? What can you really do? What are, you know, here's some specific tangible things. And I think that's what we're trying to provide here is like some specific tangible things. We can learn something and then take action from what we learn. So Carl, can I get one more bite at this apple? Sure. Um, so right now we have, we have what, like 110 turbines that have been approved for construction with Vineyard Wind and South Fork. I, I, might, I might be off yeah, on the that's number, about right. Um. And there's, you know, seven more projects in the hopper right now that I just saw a graph today or a chart today that they'll be approved in year 2023, approved or denied. Um, So there are hundreds more coming pretty quickly. What is your guys' timeline looking like? What is your plan for getting some of these beneficial um, habitat, you know, designs in the water as soon as possible you know as soon as these projects start going online in an ideal world if i I could get what we wanted we would pull we would finish pulling a team together um, that includes people outside of our organization to help because we don't have all the knowledge and skills and and equipment and um, actually start start testing some things uh in 2022 and then learn from them and uh and actually have a, have a little bit of a blueprint by the time that steel starts going in the water for these first projects. Um, I think that that's a doable thing. Yeah. Well, if you need, uh, you know, people to test out the fishability, you'd be <laughs> sure to let me and Tony know. I was, uh, I, I want to see, see, I want to see Tony fly fish in 110 feet of water. <laughs> don't, don't, oh, don't challenge yeah. me, Carl. <laughs> don't, don't, don't. I I heard a, I actually I heard a gauntlet hit the ground. Will I don't know. Like uh, <laughs> let's let's do this. I, I will I will tell you that you know as as a uh, as I've explained to my friend Willie, you know if crappie are down twenty five feet, you don't have to be fishing at twenty five feet. You know one one flick of the tail, and especially if you especially if you throw some attractive morsels in the water. I mean, I, I, I'll be the, I'll, I'll hold a, I'll be the uh, two pound line class black sea bass world's record holder on a popper. Um, I'll just clam those little styles throw some chum out there and get those little suckers frothing behind the boat. And one of them wind farms we will we'll do just fine, man. Hey, Tony, you um, know, what amazes me too, is we, you know, I mentioned, I fish these wrecks like the San Diego and a couple other wrecks off the coast of Long Island. And they're, they're pretty deep and um, you know, we're bottom fishing, but We'll see fish all the way almost to the surface, mackerel, Atlantic bonito. You know, I don't quite fully, I'm not saying I fully understand what they're doing, but they hang out on top of these reefs, you know, day after day. It's very cool. Oh, man. No, I mean, I, I wasn't, I wasn't kidding. Like, you know, they're, they're catching red snapper up on top. Again, I keep bringing Willie up and he's not here. Um, so I, I hate, Willie has a, a cod an international cod trip planned that he has been looking forward to for his entire life and he's basically going to the top of the world and he sent me a video on that was on youtube 
of uh, of these guys who were catching like I I mean like forty to seventy pound cod, and they were breaking on the surface in this in this one area. So the world is a strange place. You just have to be ready for it when the opportunity presents itself. So I don't know, Will. I'm pretty excited. Um, you know, we're just this little bitty organization. And we're trying to do the right things. And and sometimes we got, you know, friends in high places like Carl uh, with much larger organizations who come up with these things that would not be possible for the Guides Association to do. It's just the scope is just too large for us. But it sure as hell makes me sleep better at night knowing that there's like-minded, really smart people out there that are trying to turn something that could honestly be really bad it, it could uh and i don't think it's gonna be i think i think the future just got a little bit brighter um and you know the really cool thing is you know many years from now um i think i think if if this can work it'll be a place where you know a lot of kids will catch their first saltwater fish uh and get hooked on the sport and maybe it'll breed the next generation of fish policy conservation people. You know, maybe they'll catch their first black sea bass on some habitat that Carl and Chris and Kate and the team at TNC, you know, came up with this idea. Um, and that, you know, that makes me feel pretty damn positive and that doesn't happen very often. So, Will, you want to, do you want to? say anything before we sign off with Carl? Are you good, man? Did you, did you take that bite think, of the apple think, that you needed to take? Yeah, I, I took, I took that bite. I think, uh, Carl, you gave us a lot to think about. Um, we'll be sure to, uh, you know, link the report and the the blog post that y'all put hey, up. Tell the uh, listeners about you know, the website too, we Carl. This. Thank you for that. Will, I would have forgotten the material. That. Yeah. Um, www.nature.org backslash turbine reefs. Turbine they, reefs. Turbine reefs. And they'll be able to uh, to, to access this. And, and Tony, I want to close with this. You mentioned old man moments before. You know, I grew up fishing with old men. I think that's one of the great generational thing about fishing is that little kids and old men can fish together and have, I should say, and old women too, you know. You know sure. Uh, My mom's one hell of a fisherman, dude. Like I've, seen, I said, I've seen pictures dude, of her catching fish. She'll wear your ass out, like 82 years old. Get out of the way. She makes fun of my father because he is not as good of a fisherman as my mother is. She busts his chops to this day, 60 something years of marriage. <laughs> she'll holler at him. So this is not just like a PC thing saying that. As a kid who grew up in the South, my mom will whoop my 82 year old will whoop your ass fishing. So, Carl, please continue. So, um, you know, most of us growing up heard stories from old men about how good things used to be. And, and at some point, I sadly found myself as like a 25 and 30 year old man sounding like an old man talking about how I used to be able to, you know, catch fish in this spot and you can't anymore. I used to be able to swim in this canal. You can't anymore. Um, and then we, we worked on this Menhaden project and we did it together and we brought those fish back to New York. And I had, I had old men come and tell me, we never, we never, we never had this before. We never had whales and dolphins crashing under here. We never had bluefin tuna sticking around all summer long, um, you know, right in the shadow in New York, chasing Menhaden, um, you know, and all the things that 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 recovery has brought back. And so I think I think this could be one of those scenarios where, you you know, you start to hear stories of things being better than they used to be. And I think that that's pretty exciting is I, we got some of that with the Menhaden story. Yeah. Wow. I mean. We don't get those chances very often, and that's why when I saw the website, I was like, we got to do a podcast because this is the secret sauce that we've been missing. And and I have countless old man moments with Will. And when I tell him stories about what it was like, <laughs> he doesn't believe. See, there it is right there, right? Just yeah. has, no, has no inkling of trust or anything that i'm telling the truth and that's okay you know there's i think i think he's in the majority in that uh in that in that realm but you know to be able to bring something back man i, I don't know what's more special than that um you know so anyway we look forward to seeing tnc's progress on all of this 
we hope our listeners do as well. And thank you for taking time out of your day to to hop on our podcast. And uh, and hey, you know maybe we can have you on, and after a little bit of time passes again, and you can you can tell everyone what website to go to for the video of the fish habitat that y'all planted somewhere, and watch all the fish on it. And, and maybe some of our listeners will be lucky enough to catch one or two off of it. So thank you, Carl. I look forward to it. Thank you, Will. And thank you all for listening to The Guidepost. Post.